you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Only one thing is certain about apparitions, namely this, that they do appear. They really are perceived. Now, as popular language confuses apparitions with ghosts, this statement sounds like an expression of the belief that ghosts appear. It has, of course, no such meaning. When Le Loyer in 1586 boldly set out to found a new science of specters, he carefully distinguished between his method and the want of method observable in the telling of ghost stories. He began by drawing up long lists of apparitions which are not specters or ghosts, but the results of madness, malady, drink, fanaticism, illusions, and so forth. It is true that Loyer, with all his deductions, left plenty of genuine specters for the amusement of his readers. Like him, we must be careful not to confound apparitions with ghosts. Andrew Lang This is episode 39, The Cock Lane Ghost. Arthur Matchen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. of the paranormal, not every case is legitimate. Far from it, in fact. The researcher into any sort of unexplained phenomenon needs a discerning eye. Because for every legitimately unexplained case, there are four or five that are likely misidentifications of more common occurrences, or the result of faulty perception. And that's not even mentioning those that are a product of belief, folklore, or urban legend. And then, there's hoaxes those events that are outright faked for any of a number of purposes. The story of the Cock Lane Ghost begins in 1756. William Kent, also referred to as Knight or sometimes Kemp, was a moneylender from Norfolk, and he was married to a woman named Elizabeth Lines from the town of Lynham in Wiltshire. William and the pregnant Elizabeth moved to Stoke Ferry, but within a month, Elizabeth had died in childbirth. So it was that her sister Frances, or Fanny, who had moved into the house during her sister's pregnancy, stayed on to help care for the son she had born. The child itself did not live long. The sister did not move out, however, and soon she and William began having an affair. However, he moved to London in 1759, leaving Fanny behind after he found that, due to the vagaries of canon law, he was not allowed to indulge his passion as his deceased wife's issue by him was born alive, though it died a short time after birth. 
As Oliver Goldsmith wrote in his 1762 accounting of the tale, William Kent's move was spurred by intentions of purchasing a place in some public office and in hopes of finding a cure from absence and dissipation. Fanny continued to write to William after he had moved, however. Goldsmith continues telling the tale, Their affections, however, seemed to increase by absence. He constantly received letters from the young lady, filled with repeated entreaties to spend the rest of their lives together, and with positive protestations of coming to London after him on, even on foot if he did not procure her a more creditable conveyance. These instances of her regard and resolution awakened all his passion, and at last induced Mr. K to comply with her solicitations, thus at once to gratify his own inclination as well as hers. So, she came to live with William Kent once again, this time in London. They first took up residence in Greenwich, and then, as it was Mr. K's intention for the future to live with her as his wife, he had declared himself a married man to all his acquaintances long before her arrival, nor were any of them surprised at his bringing home a woman, whom he acknowledged as his lawful wife. She was always called by his name, and ever treated and considered as a wife by him. And from their mutual happiness and affection, the contrary never would have been known, had not her relations, who by all the ties of honor and generosity were concerned to keep it a secret, taken every opportunity of divulging it to the world, and form a pretended regard for her reputation, endeavored to publish her shame. They then took up residence near the mansion house, the home of the Lord Mayor of London. The landlord of their rooms there refused to repay a loan of twenty pounds that Mr. Kent had lent to him, presumably because of the disapproval of William and Fanny's situation, and he was taken to court. The two soon met Richard Parsons, a clerk at the Church of St. Sepulchre without Newgate, near the Old Bailey, London Central Court. He offered to let the couple stay in his house at 21 Cock Lane. Mr. Kent had to attend the wedding of a relative, and so he had left London, leaving Fanny at the Parsons'. As the account in the annual register for 1762 says of what followed, and the emergence of the ghost, sometime after... In the absence of the gentleman who was in the country, Mr. Parsons' daughter, a child of 11 years of age, being taken by Miss Fanny, the name the gentlewoman went by, to her bed, Miss Fanny complained one morning to the family of both having been greatly disturbed by violent noises. Mrs. Parsons, at a loss to account for this, bethought herself of a neighboring industrious shoemaker whom they concluded to be the, the cause of this disturbance. Soon after, on a Sunday night, Miss Fanny, getting out of bed, called out to Mrs. Parsons, Pray, does your shoemaker work so hard on Sunday nights too? To which being answered in the negative, Mrs. Parsons, etc., were desired to come into the chamber and be themselves witnesses to the truth of the assertion. Some accounts here state that the noises were thought by Fanny to represent an omen pretending her own death, or that they were signs of the presence of the spirit of Fanny's sister. It is at times implied that this is why the Kents left the Cock Lane house, though Goldsmith gives a differing account. But it soon unfortunately happened that his present landlord had the very same cause of dislike to Mr. K that his former landlord had. Money was borrowed by this as well as the former, and the same slow disposition to repay it appeared in the new as well as the old. 
Mr. K was therefore obliged to have recourse once more to law and to sue his new landlord for twelve pounds, after many vain solicitations for payment. This, as may naturally be expected, created uneasiness and disturbances between them, and the quarrel rose to such a height that at last he left Mr. P.'s house at an hour's warning and took another lodging at a jeweler's in the same neighborhood, an inconvenient apartment indeed, but which he expected would serve for a short time till a house which he had taken in at Bartlett Court was fitted up. James Franzen, the publican of the Wheat Sheaf Pub in Cock Lane, saw an apparition at the Parsons' home, as did Richard Parsons himself. But upon the Kent's leaving, the manifestation ceased. Goldsmith's recounting of the haunt reproduces in full the statement of a doctor named Thomas Cooper, who attended Fanny in her pregnancy. I told him there were no signs of labor, but that, from the symptoms, she would probably be ill sometime as I apprehended an eruptive fever, though I had not, at that time, any suspicion of the smallpox, as I did not know she had never had them. In the afternoon, I attended the deceased in a coach, having properly secured her from receiving any injury by cold, to the house, Mr. K. having been before sent to prepare the apartment. I had her immediately put to bed, ordered her to be blooded, and prescribed such cordial medicines as I thought were necessary to throw out an eruption. A nurse was immediately provided, and all necessaries for the care of the sick patient. The next morning, I met Mr. Jones, her apothecary, by appointment. The eruption began to appear, and from the violent lumbago of the day before, and other symptoms, we prognosticated a confluent smallpox of a very virulent nature. Mr. K. was informed that in her situation, the most favorable species of that distemper would be extremely hazardous, and that hers being a bad sort, the danger was very great. We endeavored to assist nature by early blisterings and administered medicines of a cordial nature. The symptoms were, for the first four or five days, rather favorable, but when maturation should have been performed, the pulse flagged, the fever sunk, and the whole eruption put on a warty pallid appearance. And as she could not swallow, but with difficulty, she could but seldom be prevailed upon to take anything. She was herself sensible of her danger, and Mr. K was told she could not survive three or four days. He was advised, therefore, to procure a minister to visit her, which was accordingly done. For the last two days, no persuasion could bring her to taste anything, so that, for near fifty hours before she died, she hardly swallowed a pint of any fluid whatever and that only when myself or the apothecary were present to administer it to her. The last morning of her life we found her extremely low, her eyes sunk, her speech failing, and her intellects very imperfect. We told Mr. K she could not then live twelve hours. Accordingly, a short time after we left her, her speech was wholly taken from her, she became senseless, a little convulsed, and expired in the morning, vis on the on the 2nd of February, 1760. William Kent buried his mistress in a nameless coffin in the vault at St. John's Clerkenwell. However, once the remaining members of the Lyons family learned of the terms of Fanny's will, they attempted to block its payment through legal channels, but they failed. As a result, of Fanny's accounts, which, had, which amounted to about £150, 
Only a handful of shillings was actually left to her family, and the bulk of her savings left to William. In addition, William Kent also refused to pay £45 worth of fees associated with some holdings Fanny had inherited from her deceased brother. In 1761, William Kent remarried and became a stockbroker. But in either that year or the next, the ghost in the Parsons' home was soon to resurface to Kent's detriment. A person who had behaved in so fair and open a manner might surely have no reason to expect reproach upon this affair. He might rest in security that no accusation or calumny arising from his former conduct could affect him now. But he was attacked from a quarter that no person in his senses could in the least have imagined, in a manner that but to mention would have excited the laughter of thousands. After an interval of two years, all of a sudden, he was surprised with the horrid imputation of being a murderer, of having murdered the person he held most dear upon earth, of having murdered her by poison. And who was his accuser? Why? A ghost. The reader laughs, yet, ridiculous as the witness is, groundless as the accusation, it has served to make one man completely unhappy. The slightest evils, by frequent repetition, at last become real misfortunes, and the imputation of great crimes, however unsupported, often blacken a character more than the commission of smaller ones. Parsons had apparently begun to speculate that William Kent had murdered Fanny almost immediately upon hearing of her death. But once the legal proceedings pursued against him by Kent were concluded, with a judge ordering Parsons to repay the money owed, the ghost reappeared, and as is alluded to here, claimed to be the spirit of Fanny and accused William of having murdered her. In the company of John Moore, rector of St. Bartholomew the Great, Richard Parsons devised a method of communication with the spirit that is now familiar from any number of ghost hunting TV shows. Ask yes or no questions, with the ghost knocking once for yes and twice for no. In this manner, it was said to have been determined that Fanny had not died of smallpox, as was usually assumed, but that William had given her arsenic. After a few other clergymen lent credibility to the spirit's communications, the story of the murder of the murder of Fanny Lines caught on and began to be reported in the London press. His name now being disparaged in the press, William Kent went to see John Moore. They examined the list of questions he and Parsons had determined would be asked of the spirit, and the rector told Kent that he did not believe him to be a murderer, rather that the ghost was a sign there was something behind darker than all the rest, and that if he would go to Parsons' house, he might be a witness to the same and be convinced of its reality. So, as is told by Charles Mackay in Memoirs of Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, on the following night he returned, bringing with him three clergymen and about twenty other persons, including two Negroes, when, upon a consultation with Parsons, they resolved to sit up the whole night and await the ghost's arrival. It was then explained by Parsons that although the ghost would never render itself visible to anybody but his daughter, it had no objection to answer the questions that might be put to it by any person present, and that it expressed an affirmation by one knock, a negative by two, and its displeasure by a kind of scratching. The child was then put into bed along with her sister, and the clergymen examined the bed and the bedclothes to satisfy themselves that no trick was being played by knocking upon any substance 
concealed among the clothes. As on the previous night, the bed was observed to shake violently. The spirit supposedly communicated, after a time, that it was the sister of William Kent's wife Elizabeth, that it bore a grudge against William, that it had been poisoned through food rather than drink, that only William was involved in her death, that it would appear visibly, this it did not do, that she would follow Elizabeth Parsons anywhere, and that she had told a servant woman she had been poisoned. The servant in question was present, and said this was plainly impossible, as Fanny Lyons could not speak before her death. One of the assembled told William Kent to ask the spirit if he should be hanged. The ghost knocked once in the affirmative, upon which Kent proclaimed, Thou art a lying spirit. Thou art not the ghost of my Fanny. She would never have said any such thing. Elizabeth Parsons was, indeed, moved to the home of a Mr. Bray on January 14, 1762. When she was moved here, according to what the spirit had said, the knockings and scratching moves with her. She returned to the Cock Lane house on January 18th, and another seance was held. This time, William Kent, Stephen Aldrich, the priest at St. John's Clerkenwell, and James Jones, the, the apothecary who had, attend, who had attended Fanny at her death, a relative of Parsons named Mary Fraser acted as medium. She also, she also had at the last seance. Aldrich at one point used a candle to examine the underside of her bed of the bed, and Fraser said that the ghost would not answer the last question put to her, as she loved not light. Eventually the questioning continued, but once again the ghost fell silent when asked by William Kent if it would appear in court to testify against him. The next night, yet another seance was held, Mary Fraser this time being sent from the room. This time also, the servant present at the first seance asked some questions directly of the spirit. First asked was, Are you my mistress? Which was followed by a single knock, yes, followed by scratching sounds, indicating displeasure. Therefore, the servant next asked, Are you angry with me, madam? Which once more received an affirmative reply. To this, the servant replied, Then I am sure, madam, you may be ashamed of yourself, for I never hurt you in my life. Another present was James Franzen, the publican mentioned earlier. He claimed the noisy spirit accompanied him home after the seance. The next seance was held in an outside home, belonging to a Mr. Bruin, to which Elizabeth Parsons was removed. Richard Parsons refused to allow the girl to be moved to the home of another man, who was extremely desirous of detecting the fraud and discovering the truth of this mysterious affair. No sounds were noted, although Elizabeth claimed that she saw the ghost that evening. It had appeared to no one else, though. The noises began again the next morning. Parsons agreed to allow Elizabeth to be examined at Stephen Aldrich's home on January 22nd, but when Aldrich's friend James Penn, Parson at St. Anne's Aldersgate, went to pick her up, it was claimed that she was not actually at the Parsons' house. However, another seance was at that time being held at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, one which was widely believed by viewers to be fraudulent after only a few scratchings were heard. Elizabeth Parsons had begun to crack, and later admitted that her father must needs be ruined and undone if the matter should be supposed to be an imposture. Also, that she was awake at the time the scratchings were heard, 
although she was feigning sleep. Reports in the day's press became more and more frequent, and serious interest was being taken in the case by increasingly prominent individuals, with various noblemen and local politicians becoming involved in the seances and investigations. The Lord Mayor of London, Samuel Fludger, declined to prosecute either Kent or Parsons when petitioned. Popular opinion was beginning to sway in Kent's favor, though, with many beginning to feel that he was innocent of murder and that Parsons was guilty of some manner of fraud. On January 26, 1762, Parsons defended himself in the public ledger. Whereas several advertisements have appeared in the papers reflecting upon my character, who am father of the child which now engrosses the talk of the town, I do hereby declare publicly that I have always been willing and am now ready to deliver up my child for trial into the hands of any number of candid and reasonable men, requiring only such security for a fair and gentle treatment of my child, as no father of children or man of candor would refuse. Stephen Aldrich and James Penn, however, responded to Parsons thus in Lloyd's Evening Post, saying that, We are greatly puzzled to find Mr. Parsons asserting that he hath always been been willing to deliver up the child when he refused a gentleman on Wednesday evening, the 20th instant. Finally, such luminaries as Horace Walpole, Prince Edward, the Duke of York, Lady Northumberland, Lady Mary Coke, and Lord Hertford visited the Cock Lane house in the absence of Elizabeth Parsons in an effort to uncover the truth of the matter. They were once more disappointed. Finally, a formal committee was formed to investigate, comprising these persons, Stephen Aldrich, James Penn, John Moore, Lord Dartmouth, Bishop John Douglas, Dr. George Macaulay, as well as author Samuel Johnson, who documented the seance. On the night of the 1st of February, many gentlemen eminent for their rank and character were, by the invitation of the Reverend Mr. Aldrich of Clerkenwell, assembled at his house for the examination of the noises supposed to be made by a departed spirit for the detection of some enormous crime. About ten at night, the gentlemen met in the chamber in which the girl, supposed to be disturbed by the spirit, had, with proper caution, been put to bed by several ladies. They sat rather more than an hour, and hearing nothing, went downstairs, when they interrogated the father of the girl, who denied, in the strongest terms, any knowledge of belief or fraud. The supposed spirit had before publicly promised, by an affirmative knock, that it would attend one of the gentlemen into the vault under the church of St. John's Clerkenwell, where the body is deposited, and give a token of her presence there by a knock upon her coffin. It was therefore determined to make this trial of the existence or veracity of the supposed spirit. While they were inquiring and deliberating, they were summoned into the girl's chamber by some ladies who were near her bed, and who had heard knocks and scratches. When the gentleman entered, the girl declared that she felt the spirit like a mouse upon her back, and was required to hold her hands out of bed. From that time, though the spirit was very solemnly required to manifest its existence by appearance, by impression on the hand or body of any present, by scratches, knocks, or any other agency, no evidence of any preternatural power was exhibited. The spirit was then very seriously advertised that the person to whom the promise was made of striking the coffin was then about to visit the vault, 
and that the performance of its promise was then claimed. The company at one o'clock went into the church, and the gentleman to whom the promise was made went with another into the vault. The spirit was solemnly required to perform its promise, but nothing more than silence ensued. The person supposed to be accused by the spirit then went down with several others, but no effect was perceived. Upon their return, they examined the girl, but could draw no confession from her. Between two and three, she desired and was permitted to go home with her father. It is, therefore, the opinion of the whole assembly that the child has some art of making or counterfeiting a particular noise, and that there is no agency of any higher cause. After this investigation was completed, John Moore confided in William Kent that he was fully confident that the ghost was a fraud. He refused to sign a statement to that effect, however, since it would by extension give his approval of William and Fanny's relationship and state of non-marriage. Knockings resumed at the next seance, but the story of the ghost had by this time fallen out of favor. Sounds also resumed in future seances, but with the fraud now finding general acceptance among the people of London, Elizabeth Parsons was put in a hammock rather than her bed, so that her hands and feet remained visible. As expected, the noises ceased when Elizabeth's hands were held outside the hammock. The ghost then fell silent for several days. She was given a time limit, and told if the ghost did not manifest its noises by such and such a day, she and her father would be put into prison. A maid saw her concealing a piece of wood upon her person, and informed the investigators without Elizabeth's knowledge. When more scratches, then, were predictably heard, the investigators formally charged Richard and Elizabeth Parsons with fraud. Only a few days after this, the account by Oliver Goldsmith quoted several times in this episode appeared. And at approximately the same time, William Kent and Stephen Aldrich exhumed Fanny's body to put an end to the charade. Finally, John Moore printed a retraction of his earlier statements in the press. In justice to the person whose reputation has been attacked in the most gross manner by the pretended ghost in Cock Lane, to check the credulity of the weak, to defeat the attempts of the malicious, and to prevent further imposition on account of this absurd phenomena, I do hereby certify that though, from the several attendances on this occasion, I have not been able to point out how and in what matter those knockings and scratchings of the supposed ghost were contrived, performed, and continued, yet that I am convinced that those knockings and scratchings were the effect of some artful, wicked contrivance, and that I was, in a more especial manner, convinced of its being such on the first of this month, when I attended, with several persons of rank and character, who assembled at the Reverend Mr. Aldrich's Clerkenwell, in order to examine into this iniquitous imposition upon the public. Since which time, I have not seen the child, nor heard the noises, and think myself in duty bound to add that the injured person, when present to hear himself accused by the pretended ghost, has not, by his behavior, given the least ground of suspicion, but has preserved that becoming steadfastness, which nothing, I am persuaded, but innocence could inspire. But despite this, he was charged with conspiracy to defraud William Kent in the following days, and was tried along with Richard Parsons, his wife, the quote-unquote medium Mary Fraser, and a tradesman named Richard James, 
who was possibly the cobbler mentioned when the ghost first manifested. William Murray was judge presiding over the trial. Kent testified as to his relationship with Fanny Lines, and several personages who had attended Miss Fanny's new theater, as the seances had become known, with the ghost itself becoming known as Scratching Fanny, also testified. Richard James was accused of having written some of the most inflammatory attacks on William Kent's character, which had appeared in the press. The trial lasted only one day, and the jury deliberated for only 15 minutes before finding all five guilty of all the charges brought against them. In the following days, two others were fined 50 pounds for taking part in the conspiracy as well. The annual register summed up the case thus. The court choosing that Mr. Kent, who had been so much injured upon the occasion, should receive some reparation by punishment of the offenders, deferred giving judgment for seven or eight months in hopes that the parties might make it up in the meantime. Accordingly, the clergymen and tradesmen agreed to pay Mr. Kent a round sum, some say between 500 and 600 pounds, to purchase their pardon, and were therefore dismissed with a severe reprimand. The father was ordered to be set in the pillory three times in one month, once at the end of Cock Lane, Elizabeth his wife to be imprisoned one year, and Mary Fraser six months in Bridewell, with hard labor. The father appearing to be out of his mind at the time he was first standing in the pillory, the execution of that part of his sentence was deferred to another day, when, as well as the other day of his standing there, the populace took so much compassion on him that instead of using a mill, they made a handsome subscription for him. The supposed haunting in Cock Lane was caught in the crossfire of a religious feud between the fairly new Methodists and the more established Anglicans. Methodism was early, was early on seen as a religion extremely credulous of claims of the supernatural, being more or less identified with the poltergeist encountered by founder John Wesley at his family's home at Epworth Priory. Anglicans on the other hand, generally saw belief in the supernatural as remnants of Catholicism. As a result, most Methodist clergymen tended to believe in the ghost, while most Anglicans were, were skeptical of it. In fact, Horace Walpole later claimed that the conspiracy was mainly the work of Methodist clergymen. Several political cartoons satirized the ghost, among them at least two prints by William Hogarth. It also appeared in numerous plays and poems. In later years, Charles Dickens, who had a notable interest in ghost stories and the supernatural, mentioned the Cock Lane ghost in several of his works, including A Tale of Two Cities and Nicholas Nickleby. In 1905, an interesting postscript to the saga of the Parsons ghost appeared. According to a Canadian news report, some curious and unexplained events at Saracen House, Snow Hill, have caused people to inquire whether the famous Cock Lane ghost is at work again. Saracen House is built on the, on the site occupied by the house where the ghostly manifestations which so interested Dr. Johnson took place. It is now occupied by an unromantic firm of American dealers, Messrs. John L. Sardi and Company. A night or two ago, Mr. Sardi was called up on the telephone by the police who told him that the door of the premises was open. They also said that the electric light was switched on. Mr. Sardi hurried down. The light had been switched off before he arrived. Accompanied by a policeman, he entered the offices, 
to find them perfectly empty. No sign of anyone having been there could be found, and so far, no explanation of the incident is forthcoming. Nor is the opening of the door less mysterious. Hammond, the warehouseman, declares that he locked the door when he left at 8 o'clock. That he did so is proved by a customer of the firm, who saw him not only lock the door, but apply his knee to it to test it. There were no indications that the door had been forced and the lock had not been tampered with. There have been several unexplained happenings in the same building. Not long ago, a heavy weight was heard to fall in one of the first floor rooms, breaking the incandescent mantles in the room below. When an employee went upstairs to see what had fallen, he found the room in its normal state. Messer Sardi and company have occupied their present premises for about six years and are no believers in the supernatural, but they find it rather difficult to explain weird instances of the kind narrated. So, interesting, isn't it? Blaming ghostly happenings in a building on the return of a ghost, which never even actually existed. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, till next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.